People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we have a great opportunity today to speak to the author of a debut novel called Good Me, Bad Me. That's Ellie Land from the UK. We reviewed the book earlier this year. It is a dark book, but Ellie now is in South Africa to shed some light on Good Me, Bad Me. Welcome to South Africa. Welcome to the Open Book Think, the, the Open Book Festival in Cape Town, and welcome here to Chai FM, Ellie. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Looking forward to this. Now, this is our pleasure. I'm going to jump straight into questions. Good Me, okay. Bad Me is a very powerfully disturbing read. Without spoiling the book for those who have not read it yet, but who are going to go out and buy a copy after this interview, can you please give a context and a synopsis for the book? So Good Me, Bad Me tells the story of 15-year-old Annie, who is um, the daughter of a serial killer. Uh, she hands her mum into the police and is given a new identity as Millie and placed in a foster family in London. Millie is going to be the key witness against her mother in court, so the book builds towards this court, the sort of court scenes where she'll be facing her mother. And it really follows Millie's new journey out with the sort of physical reach of her mum, only to discover that psychologically she's even more damaged than perhaps she thought or other people thought. And the tension in the book is specifically shown through a relationship with her foster sister who bullies her secretly and the reader starts to experience Millie's true thoughts and desires and really understand this teenager's mind. And it's a kind of, it's been described as a page-turner, unforgettable, and I suppose it is a thriller at the heart of it. It's a thriller, but it is really a sort of character study of a very troubled teenager. What inspired and motivated you to write Good Me, Bad Me? Well, prior to writing, I was a child and adolescent mental health nurse for a decade. So I had many experiences and conversations of looking after young people who had come from seriously damaged and troubled backgrounds. And about eight years ago, when I was a young nurse, I um, looked after a girl for a period of three months. She was 15 and her mother had been involved in the serious harm of young children. And this girl believed at a very young age, at 15, that no matter what she did, she would turn into her mum. And as a nurse, I, I never had that conversation on that Friday night on the floor with this girl and thought, I'm going to write about it one day. I just stored it away in, in the place that we do as nurses. It's a very busy job. And I suppose the burden that this girl carried and other young people that I looked after carried began to haunt me over the years. And I really wanted to explore how we could feel more compassionately towards young people who have very difficult backgrounds and who aren't able to simply be good. Good me, bad me joins a long list of literature that investigates the capabilities of children to do evil. You mention Lord of the Flies in your book because there's a stage production in the school that Millie goes to, but it goes all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel, uh, and the, capaci the capacity to do evil. How, how do you advance and develop the idea and thoughts around this topic in the book Good Me, Bad Me? Well, I think, you know, Lord of the Flies is hugely referenced throughout the book. It was a book that I read when I was 15, and, and I found utterly compelling. I always remember looking at my classmates and wondering what they would be capable of or I would be capable of if we were the ones who were on islands. And it also made me think about forgiveness. If a, people can forgive a child who does something bad in order to survive or escape their circumstances. So... I really wanted to focus on girls. I think my experiences... Um, 
of looking after the particularly teenage girl that I'd spoken about earlier, which inspired this book, the psychological violence that I was witnessing between girls, but also between mothers and daughters. So for me, it was advancing the idea that it's not just physical violence in the way that we see in Lord of the Flies um, between the boys, but it's a sort of psychological violence, this slow creeping violence that's exceptionally damaging and it's it's sort of secret you can't see it it's not a black eye or a rich school shirt in the playground it's something a lot more lethal than that so i really really wanted to explore the potential not just of children but of girls particularly with a focus on the character mike in the book who's both milieu psychologist and foster father do you believe that psychology is an effective tool to repair damaged children or people and if you say no, then what would be? <laughs> I'm going to have to say yes, but I've answered twice. <laughs> Psychology is exceptionally important. It's, so, it's you know, Millie's mind uh, in the book is a very complex place for her to own, for the readers to experience. And she really needs help from someone to unpick that and unpick these thought processes. And one of the most consistent emotions that Millie experiences is guilt. This idea that even though she's handed her serial killer mother into the police, she still indeed loves her and misses her and wishes she could see her again. That's an emotion and an experience that, that many people, many lay people who don't work in psychology or in mental health wouldn't necessarily be shocked by. So I think it's incredibly important for Millie to make sense of that. So psychology in that respect is exceptionally useful sort of unpicking all these processes, not just understanding them, but giving young people coping skills so they can recognize this feeling means that, how will I help myself, how will I stop myself, and asking questions like, psychologists will, you know, sort of expect young people to be reflecting on things like, what would I change about next time, how would I do things differently, what would I like to see changing, so I think it's exceptionally important. Do you have an overall positive or negative view on humanity? Well, I try to attack things positively. I have a lot of hope. There is a lot of savagery in the world. There's a lot of sadness in the world. But amongst all of that, there's some incredibly brilliant people. You know, I dedicated my book to mental health nurses everywhere, true rock stars, as I call them. And, you know, I, I kind of believe that within humanity that there are so many unsung heroes doing magic and doing magical things and working exceptionally hard to, you know, increase levels of positivity and kindness. But I think the key to being more humane is understanding. And again, you know, I, I view writing Give Me Badly as an extension of my nursing. I, I think people who understand, uh, people who are different, are more likely to be em empathetic and compassionate. So I think understanding is the key. But I definitely have faith in humanity. I, I lived, there was a terrible fire in London recently called the Grenfell Tower. I don't know if you guys heard about it over here, but I lived only a couple of streets away from there. And I saw humanity at its most brilliant and rawest level um, with the community really stepping forward and, and holding each other. So, so I, I, I really do believe in humanity is a positive thing. Annie's relationship with her foster sister Phoebe allows you to investigate children's cruelty so comprehensively, especially bullying in all its forms. How close to reality is this relationship? Well, I think, you know, when I was writing Goodly Band, I gave up the nursing to write this book. I needed the psychological energy, and, and I also felt morally that perhaps I shouldn't be looking after young people that I was going to be kind of writing about. So I worked, whilst I wrote this book, as a private nanny in London, and I was witnessing firsthand one of the kids I looked after went to an all-girls school. So some of the experiences in the book and some of the situations is drawn directly from reality, 
and the relationships I was seeing between the girls, and not just the enemies, but the friends, were also quite vicious. So, I mean, not to say that every experience at school, every experience between girls is like that, but I think the potential I saw for girls to be incredibly harmful to each other was grounded in reality, and, and especially the use of mobile phones. I saw information being passed around 100 miles an hour, which just wouldn't have happened years ago. So I think that's the, the vaster reach of the internet, and like the faster speed is, is where this kind of the underlying tensions and, and bullying are kind of going on. So I think a lot of them um, relationship in Phoebe and Millie, could, you could say, is granted in, in reality. It's certainly things I witnessed amongst girls. Do you have any solutions to the problem of mobile, you know, uh, smartphone-based bullying? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm afraid to say it's exceptionally um, challenging. It's, it's one of the greatest challenges our youth face today. And I, I think... You know, in the book, the the girl in Billy Babby, the girls are given a, a an online forum by the headmistress. You know, the safe space so they're supposed to use and own and uh, as a kind of creative outlet or a message board. And, and you see the girls, in particular Phoebe, Millie Foster, the abusing abusing this space and changing the password so she's like one step ahead of the adults. And I think the savviness that young people have with the internet is what keeps them ahead of, of the grown-ups and what's actually going on and the speed that things are moving at. And the only thing that, you know, grown-ups can be doing is just having conversations with young people about how things are going, what's happening, just checking in on them. It's so hard to monitor every facet of a young person's life when they've got, you know, their phone in their bedroom one click away from the rest of the world. Is it going to be possible to know really what that young person's interacting with or feeling? Or, But I think just having open dialogue and open conversations with young people and exploring how people feel about the online world and what's happened to them in the online world. So it's, just a, it's a, a big conversation that needs to keep going in, in every kind of opportunity we have to touch base with kids about that and education at school and, and positive role modelling about it. We're speaking to Ali Land, the author of Good Me, Bad Me, who's in South Africa for the Open Book Festival. And we'll be back with a few more questions straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next question I'd like to ask you is also in relationships between teenage girls. Annie Millie has a friendship with a girl called Morgan, who's the poor girl who lives in the council house just down the road from her wealthy foster family. And Morgan is very, very different from the very privileged and wealthy girls who go to the private school that you know, Annie or Millie and her and Phoebe go to. How are you using Morgan to show different teenage girl or adolescent girl dynamics? Morgan, after Millie, was my absolutely favorite character to write. She's a sweetheart. And because I don't plot, I'm very much a panther. I sort of write to explore my characters, the, the, the kind of inner psychology of them, and what really lurks is deep as possible inside them. And I worked out as I was writing Millie that the key to unlocking her was by the people that I surrounded her with. So I wanted to give Millie an opportunity to receive unconditional love, which is something she's never had in her life. And Morgan was very much the character who gave Millie the unconditional love. They have a quite turbulent relationship in the book, but at the at the heart of it, you have a very trusting younger girl, very vulnerable girl who who loves Millie honestly and purely. And I suppose what I wanted to show was that you know love can come from anywhere at any level, and it doesn't have to be between someone that you might expect to get it from. And actually, looking at Phoebe and Millie, who are 
very similar in some of the characteristics and they kind of go to war with each other. And then you have Morgan who's from a completely different side of the fence and this kind of purity of their relationship I felt to be really humbling and really important for the readers, especially to see a different side to Minnie, to see that she was capable of experiencing and showing kindness and love so that there would be a sense for the reader that there is hope for a child like Minnie, that she can recover to a certain level. Another reference, a little reference that uh, I I experienced when reading Good Me, Bad Me, I don't think anyone's made this to you before, was to Lord of the Rings. Because in the hallway of Lord of the Rings, the one one, uh, great wicked person, the the Lord of uh, Mordor, now his name escapes me, is never ever a direct character in the book. He's always referenced, but you never meet him. And the same thing with Millie's mother. She's, I almost wanted to meet her. I wanted to have a scene when she was there. But you've, you've kept the, the physical person out the book. And all you have is this insidious, very, very damaging psychological presence that, that gets into her daughter's mind and then, as you see, damages her daughter beyond beyond words that that was a very very powerful way of creating this evilness that in my mind that became the lack of a person and just this black hole of pure evil became so representative of uh, of, of 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 this 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 child murderer and I'm sure that had to have been um, thought out and planned it wasn't just uh, an overthought no, I was very clear from the beginning of writing Give Me Bambi that this was Millie's story, that this was a story that would highlight the difficulties a teenager like Millie faces in a new life after she leaves her mother. And so I was very focused on the fact that it would be that her mother would never be described, she would never be present, if you like. And what that actually did, you know, it's really interesting. Readers often say to me, you know, I love the fact you never name the mother. And I sort of always have a little inner smile. Sometimes I tell them, but sometimes I don't. And I do actually name the mother. I, I give her a full name only once in the book, but, but most people miss that. And I think that's really interesting because I, I so wanted the focus to be on Millie and her story. And I think I've achieved that. And, and for me, I think as a responsibility as a, as a kind of crime writer or writing about difficult subjects is to not focus on the act, so to not think, not to focus on actually what Millie's mother did but to look at the damage, the aftermath, the people who are left behind. So it was kind of just another, I suppose, another tool, another element to my nursing on the page. I really wanted to to think less about the monster and more about how her daughter would be left feeling. So, And and weirdly, what's happened is because the mother is removed and she obviously comes in the form of a snake in the book, which is a terrifying kind of idea, um, it's made it even more frightening that she's off the page for the majority of the book, but still so very present psychologically. Yeah. Is there a lot of research being done on the children of serial killers or child abusers? Well, I mean, think serial killers, especially female serial killers, are exceptionally, thankfully, very, very rare. And I think you know people were quite shocked when I when I chose this to be a female, and the, the idea that the women who, who give life can take life is, is still more shocking in some ways than than a man. It seems that bad women are still worse than bad men. But uh, reference to children, um, I don't think so because serial killers are quite rare. And the, the idea there, there was Rose West who had a, a surviving daughter who was involved in the kind of the court case and. 
I always thought about a young person like that going on and having a new life. And I, I think this is an area that we really do need to research better. And I think people need to understand the difficulties these young people face in having a new life. Imagine being a 15-year-old girl whose mother's a serial killer. So not only have you got all the, the teenage usual pressures of being 15, but you've got a whole new identity, all these secrets to keep for the rest of your life. So, I, you know, I think there probably isn't much research going on, but there should be a lot more. In the process of writing Good Me, Bad Me, or uh, in the author tours that you've been doing, the interviews that you've given, have there been any standout incidents or moments that will always stay with you? Oh, well, there's been so many. Can, um, well, I've just arrived in, in um, Cape Town, so I can't say too much. My first event, live event, is tonight, so I'm sure there'll be some amazing standout moments on this tour. But I think... One of the most brilliant, well, actually, one of the best things about being on tour as an author is meeting readers, because writing is quite a lonely thing to do. You are marooned at your desk, and you do feel a bit shipwrecked and a bit savage the whole time, sort of every day that there's a marathon of words that you have to, to, to complete. So to get out on tour was amazing, and I met um, a lady called Shirley, who's 83 years old, and it was in an event in Brighton in, in England, and she had come to this event. It was her first ever book event and she'd been walking past the bookshop and she didn't want to go home, she said, and she saw my picture and, and the books arranged in the windows and she sort of came in randomly uh, to, to the event and sat down and, and she bought a copy of my book, which was a hardback at the time, which was quite a lot of money and quite heavy. So she, she came up to me and, and she said that this was a new adventure for her and um, the queue well, this sounds quite big-headed, I don't mean to, but the queue for signing was quite long. So she said, by the time she'd got to, to meet me, she'd read the first chapter of the book, and she said that for the first time ever in her life, she'd understood what people were talking about when they said voice in the book. And she said that, you know, this was going to be a brand new adventure for her, and she couldn't wait to start reading different books, new books. And I just thought that was really special, because you're never too old, you know, to, to, to start something new or to learn something. And it was just so nice to connect with her. And, and in the same way, I met a 15-year-old girl in Manchester who came to one of my events with her mother. And she spoke so beautifully about the book and her own insights and her own experiences of growing up in a high school in inner city, Manchester, and her own experiences. So, you know, that's my youngest and my oldest reader. And both, they taught me loads just by talking to them, which, which was wonderful. So that's pretty standout. Did the process of writing Good Me, Bad Me take a toll on you? You had to yes. somehow oh, sorry, get out on. of that. You, you somehow had to do something to break that tension, to, to lift this dark cloud. <laughs> well, I tell you something, it was, it was probably, I mean, both it was traumatic to write the book, but also cathartic. Um, I wrote the first draft. I was working, as I said, as a nanny, but the, the week, the hours that I was working were exceptionally long. So 7 in the morning, 7.30 at night. And I would write sort of from 11 o'clock at night to 2 o'clock in the morning. And I did that for about four or five months to get the first draft done. And I really genuinely saw hardly anybody during that time other than the kids I was looking after, you know, in my day job. And it was this traumatic kind of tense process that saw me sleep-deprived, um, very emotional. I spent a lot of time crying and worrying about whether it was okay that I wrote about a child like Millie and whether I might isolate them further. So I had all this anxiety and Actually, in the book, Mike, who's the foster father and also the psychologist, um, is secretly writing a book about Millie. So that's a parallel to how I was feeling about the process, this kind of moral dilemma, like, is it okay that I'm writing about someone that I looked after or a version of someone I looked after? So, so that was very traumatic and very tense, that whole kind of five-month period. But actually, 
now that I've finished the book and it's, it's, it's gone into the world, I have realised that, that writing Gibby Dabby was very cathartic for me. And I had carried so many worries and a terrible burden of these young people who, who felt the same burden that I tucked it away and I haven't really spoken to anyone about this. And I suppose that whole problem shared is a problem half. I haven't found solutions to how we look after these young people. But I do feel a greater sense of peace having written the book and sharing the conversation with many other people around the world. So, yeah, it was an interesting process. The, the last question is, what are you working on currently? What can we look forward to seeing on the shelves in so many more months' time? It was a dreaded second book. <laughs> so I am working on a, it will be another psychological drama slash thriller. And this time it is set on a scarcely inhabited Scottish island with a man named Jack a 38-year-old man named Jack at the heart of the story. So all is not as it seems on this island. And I'm hoping to create a cast of extremely interesting characters and a kind of pressure cooker of an environment. And we'll see what happens <laughs> as the book progresses. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at at the moment. I've just delivered the first draft to my editor, and I will start the second draft when I get back from Cape Town. Ali, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to share... The, the creative process behind Good Me, Bad Me and the motivations and the, the, say the, 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 the burden sharing that went into writing this book. Enjoy your stay in South Africa and uh, we wish you great success with this book, not only here in South Africa but around the world. And we, we're looking forward to seeing what the next book's going to be like because this is one great read. Uh, food for thought is a heavy book but um, if if the next book is half as good we'll be reviewing it on the radio station here and asking your publishers in Johannesburg to set up an interview for us so we can continue the conversation around these topics with you thank you Thank you so much. I think, of course, that I can deliver always half as good, hopefully, and I'll get to talk to you again. And I so appreciate the support. I've had such a warm welcome already in, in, in South Africa. So thank you so much for supporting the book. Much appreciated. It's our pleasure. Thank you. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We've just finished our interview with Ellie Land. All the books that I have discussed over the past few weeks I've now loaded up to our Facebook page. So if you missed something over the last few weeks, you want to see it, you want to uh, find out the title or the author, go to Facebook, type in in your search, People of the Book on 1.9, and then all the books that we've discussed over the last few weeks, plus the two interviews we played over last week and this week. Last week, Nathan Hill, the author of The Knicks. This week, Ali Land, the author of Good Me, Bad Me. It's all loaded up. And now we can get to the books for today's show. And I've got a lot of books to get through in the last show of this Jewish year. <clears throat> the first one I'm going to look at is a book called How to Stop Time. It's by Matt Haig, published by Cannon Gate. Matt Haig is the author of Children's Books. He's also the author of a, a, a biography, his own autobiography, Reasons to Stay Alive, which was one of the best-selling books in the UK when it came out. And this is his new book. It's called How to Stop Time. Tom Hazard has a dangerous secret. He may look like an ordinary 41-year-old, but owing to a rare condition, he's been alive for centuries. From Elizabethan England to Jazz Age Paris, from New York to the South Seas, Tom has seen a lot 
and now he craves an ordinary life. Always changing his identity to stay alive, Tom has the perfect cover, working as a history teacher at a London comprehensive. Here he can teach the children about wars and witch hunts as if he'd never witnessed them firsthand. He can try and tame the past that is fast catching up with him. The only thing Tom mustn't do is fall in love. How to Stop Time is the bittersweet story written by Tom Haig, and it's already been uh, the beginnings of it turning it into a movie have happened with have started with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch as the main character but what I want to do in order to share how exciting and how captivating How to Stop Time is is just to read from you, to you from the first part of the, the, the book to give you a sense a taste of, of How to Stop Time I often think of what Heinrich said to me over a century ago in his New York apartment the first rule is that you don't fall in love, he said. There are other rules too, but that is the main one. No falling in love, no staying in love, no daydreaming of love. If you stick to this, you will just about be okay. I stared through the curving smoke of his cigar over Central Park, where trees lay uprooted from the hurricane. I doubt I will ever love again, I said. Heinrich smiled, like the devil he could be. Good. You are, of course, allowed to love food and music and champagne, and rare sunny afternoons in October. You can love the sight of waterfalls and the smell of old books, but the love of people is off limits. Do you hear me? Don't attach yourself to people, and try to feel as little as you possibly can for those you do meet, because otherwise you will slowly lose your mind. The first chapter. I am old. That is the main thing to tell you. The thing you are least likely to believe. If you saw me, you would probably think I was about 40. But you would be wrong. I am old. Old in a way that a tree or a Renaissance painting is old. To give you an idea, I was born well over 400 years ago, on the 3rd of March, 1581, in my parents' room on the third floor of a small French chateau that used to be my home. It was a warm day, apparently, for the time of year, and my mother had asked her nurse to open all the windows. God smiled on you, my mother said, though I think she might have added, should he exist. The smile had been a frown ever since. My mother died a very long time ago. I, on the other hand, did not. You see, I have a condition. I thought of it as an illness for quite a while, but illness isn't really the right word. Illness suggests sickness and wasting away. Better to say I have a condition, a rare one, but not unique, one that no one knows about until they have it. It is not in any official medical journals, nor does it go by an official name. The first respected doctor to give it one, back in the 1890s, called it an Egeria, with a soft G, but for reasons that will become clear, that never became public knowledge. The condition develops around puberty. What happens after that is, well, not much. Initially, the sufferer of the condition won't notice they have it. After all, everyday people wake up and see the same face they saw in the mirror yesterday. Day by day, week by week, even month by month, people don't change in very perceptible ways. But as time goes by at birthdays or other annual markers, people begin to notice you aren't getting any older. The truth is, 
though, that the individual hasn't stopped aging. The individual still ages in exactly the same way, just much slower. The speed of aging among those with an nigeria fluctuates a little, but generally it's a 1 to 15 ratio. Sometimes it is a year every 13 or 14 years, but with me it's closer to 15. So we are not immortal. Our minds and bodies aren't in stasis. It's just that according to the latest ever-changing science, various aspects of our aging process, the molecular degeneration, the cross-linking between cells in a tissue, the cellular molecular mutations, happen on another time frame. My hair will go grey. I may go bald. Osteoarthritis and hearing loss are likely. My eyes are just as likely to suffer with age-related prebiopia, but I will eventually I will eventually lose muscle mass and mobility. A quirk of anageria is that it does tend to give you a heightened immune system, protecting you from many, not all, viral and bacterial infections. This is the beginning of How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. It's a story of Tom Hazard, whose dangerous secret is that he ages, uh, it takes him 15 years to age over one year. There's a secret society of people who suffer from anageria, led by this devil-like personality, Heinrich. And this is the story of how a person who's not allowed to fall in love has to learn how to stop time. It's a great, great book. It's already been made into... They've started the process of making it into a movie. It's available in the shops. And Matt Haig is one of those irresistible authors that once you've read one of his books, you'll be looking out on the shelves for everything else that he writes. The next book we're going to look at is called Safe, and it's by Ryan Gattis. This is published by uh, Picador, and it's available available in the shops at the moment. And in it, a drug addict turned safe cracker is pursued by criminals in the Los Angeles ganglands. Ryan Gattis's 2015 novel, All Involved, featured 17 first-person narratives over a period of 144 hours during the famous 1992 LA riots. His new book, Safe, again set among the drug glands of Los Angeles, similarly features a compressed timeline. Here it's only 48 hours. But here, Gattis pairs the voices to just two narrators. Ricky Ghost Mendoza is a former addict, and now he is a safe cracker for the DEA. This is a quote. Nicky Mendoza Jr. wasn't my real name, just one I took as my legal back when it seemed smart to. Like, the real me died back when I changed it, and what's left of me just floats. That's the first character. Meanwhile, Rudy Glasses Reyes is a drug runner for one of Los Angeles' most notorious gangsters, known as Rooster. When you work for him, this is a quote, when you work for him, you got to be invisible. One antenna colony, one tiny speck among a million other ones. The book Safe opens with Ghost cracking a drug baron safe for the DEA and declaring that if I get into the safe and they leave me alone while I'm doing it, I'm taking the money. Not all of it. I'm not stupid. Just some. And a couple of hours later, Ghost walks away with $887,000. But his car has been identified, and before long he is being pursued by glasses, dispatched to retrieve his boss's money. What transpires is no ordinary gangster cat-and-mouse chase. This is 2008. 
just before the housing crisis is about to implode. And as Ghost observes, this is another quote, when the economy goes down, crime goes up. Average people do what they can, and maybe they don't drown. But people on the bottom got to make ends meet somehow. Mouths don't feed themselves. So, with that in mind, Ghost doesn't want the money for himself, but for somebody else, somebody who needs it. As a reformed addict, with a sense of social responsibility, he intends to give all the money to Mira, a bank manager, who in turn plans secretly to pay off her customers' mortgage arrears to save their houses from repossession. Ghost is really a modern-day Robin Hood. Glasses, meanwhile, has covert intentions of his own. As a husband and father to a young son, he's desperate to escape Rooster's clutches and settle his family far away, but knows the risks in trying to free himself from gang culture. He has a quote in his, in his, in his voice. In our real world, every small game is linked together into a larger one. Except with this, there's no such thing as boards and squares. There's only a map of the land and a mess of pieces. Here we've got a Robin Hood gangster, a former drug addict who's stolen from a gang boss, and we've got someone who's trying to extricate himself from the the gang boss's clutches and restart his life. And also we have Ghost, that's the reformed drug addict who works for the DEA, and his Former, his love for a for for a, for a, for a woman he met when he was in hospital, Rose, who died because of a cancer, and his memories of Rose inform him throughout the book. Through multiple definitions of the word safe, both physical, emotional, psychological, and financial, Gattis has created a gripping novel about opportunity, transformation, and hope. So this is the book Safe by Ryan Gattis, published by Picador, and it's available in shops right now. The next book we're going to look at is called The Lying Game, and it's by Ruth Ware. Ruth Ware is the author of um, a number of crime thrillers in a dark, dark wood, and The Woman in Cabin 10, which was mentioned on the show last year. We look at Ruth Ware's latest book, The Lying Game, straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we are looking at a number of books which are available at the moment. The books we've looked at so far are How to Stop Time, and that's by Matt Haig. And also the other book we looked at is so far is Safe by Ryan Gattis. These are our two books so far for today. Now, we've got a few more that I want to discuss, and... Uh, the next one we're going to look at is a crime thriller novel, and it's called The Lying Game, and it's by Ruth Ware. And it's available. And everyone out there who loves crime thrillers, you can say thank goodness for Ruth Ware, a contemporary crime writer who successfully extracted the integral elements of the genre's classics. She's been compared to Agatha Christie, and if you read her books, you'll see that's an a valid comparison. Once she's extracted the elements of the genre's classics, she's repackaged them for the modern reader. Her last book was The Woman in Cabin 10. It was a very, very clever cruise ship set, uh, and it, it, it was a take on The Lady Vanishes. And her debut novel 
in a dark, dark wood examined the shifting sands of female friendship when a hen party took a turn towards murder. She returns to similar territory here in her third novel, The Lying Game, the premise of which is simply is simple but highly effective. Four old school friends bound together by a terrible secret. Fifteen years ago, Issa Wilde arrived at Salton House, a boarding school on the British South Coast. She and three other girls, Fatima, Kate and Thea, form an inseparable clique, impervious to the world around them. They spend their weekends at Kate's home, the Old Mill, a ramshackle building overlooking the nearby estuary, under the libertarian eye of her father, Ambrose, who's also the school's art teacher, and in the company of Kate's sort of half-brother, Luke. Most of the girls' time, however, is spent playing the lying game, competing with each other to get away with increasingly outrageous untruths, to outwit everyone else. It's us against them. Then one day something terrible happens, and henceforth they're lying not for fun, but to survive. When we meet Issa at the beginning of the novel, she's a 32-year-old lawyer and a new mother living in London. Woken by an unexpected text message from Kate in the middle of the night, I need you, is all it says. She hurries down to Sultan, where her friend Kate still lives, now all alone in the crumbling old mill, followed shortly thereafter by Fatima and Thea. Human bones have been discovered buried on the beach, and the women need to get their stories straight. Where weaves a nicely, not, a nicely knotty and, more importantly, plausible mystery that as well as delivering the expected twists, turns and tensions readers will be looking for, also showcases the thorny relationships and loyalties at work in the friendships between her main characters. Their past so woven with mine, Issa thinks, that there's no way to separate us, any of us. And although it's Issa who provides the central consciousness of the novel, each of the four anti-heroines is fully realized in her own right. It's also enormously pleasing that the lying game doesn't hinge on either the persecution or subjugation of its female characters. Instead, it's the age, their agency to propel, that propels the narrative forward. This is a very, very gripping uh, crime thriller. It's Ruth where she is a name to follow. This is called The Lying Game. Her previous books have been The Woman in Cabin 10 and Dark, Dark Wood. Those are two other great crime thrillers to look out for. The new Ruth where The Lying Game is available in the shops at the moment. Now, the next book also, this is an extremely enjoyable book. Uh, it's available it's very, very powerful as well, and it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it could be a fast or a slow read, but it's really a great read as well. It's called Saints for All Occasions. It's by Courtney Sullivan, and it's published by Fleet. It's a family saga. It's Courtney Sullivan's fourth novel, and it covers five decades in the lives of a pair of Irish sisters, Nora and Teresa Flynn. It's told in parallel narratives that eventually converge. The novel begins twice. Its first opening occurs in 2009 with the death of Nora's oldest son, Patrick. A, few, a middle-aged bar owner, he died in a car accident. A few pages later, we travel back in time to 1957 
to Ireland, and we watch as Nora and Teresa leave the Irish village of Milltown, Malbay, to join Nora's fiancé, Charlie Rafferty, in Boston. And Ireland is beautifully portrayed. They come from a very backward town. There's not even electricity in the houses yet. And uh, you see this almost rural life that they're living. It's a poor life. Practical, self-effacing Nora agreed to marry Charlie because his family owns the neighboring farm. But when his wastrel brother inherits instead, Charlie heads to America. Though she doesn't love him, or even particularly like him, Nora dutifully follows. 17-year-old Teresa, Nora's sister and her fictional opposite, she is brave and beautiful, brash and clever, travels with her sister Nora, hoping for more than a factory job, but chiefly primed for romantic adventure. Predictably, their experiences in Boston diverge as soon as they take up residence in a Dorchester boarding house. While Nora settles into her her traces as a seamstress, Teresa falls for the black-haired Clark Gable-ish Lothario she meets at a dance hall. That one looks like trouble, Nora observes the instant she spots him. And no surprise, she isn't proved wrong. What is surprising... And it's revealed the very on the on 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 the the, the the book's jacket and very early in the novel is that brash and beautiful Teresa goes on to become a nun, but not just any nun. Teresa lives in a cloistered abbey in rural Vermont, spending her days doing chores much like the ones she left behind in the Irish little town of Milltown, Malbay. While she makes this choice, why she makes this choice, and especially how it affects Nora requires the rest of the carefully plotted novel to uncover. Nora reluctantly marries Charlie, who turns out to be a better man than she ever could have expected. They cause whispers by having a son a little bit too soon after their wedding. But life settles down, and two more sons and a tomboy daughter follow. We are also shown the tangled fates of these Rafferty children, adults who remain knotted to their mother despite their own dramatically different lives. John, Nora's overachieving second son, who worked like a dog and whose entire life has been shaped by the quest for her approval, can never quite get her attention, though he marries well and becomes a wealthy Republican political consultant with a country club membership and a big house in the suburbs. His younger sister Bridget, who's the tomboy, moves to New York and has she lives with her partner. Uh, she can never quite bring herself to tell her mother about her lifestyle choices. But it's the oldest son, Patrick, the one who dies at the beginning of the novel in a car accident, who's the most troubled of all of Nora's children. But following this immigrant family's life in America and how the split between the two sisters, Nora and Teresa, played itself out over the five decades. You really settle into a beautifully written and very, very expertly observed novel about families. That's Saints for All Occasions by Courtney Sullivan and it's published by Fleet. We'll be back with one or two more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at is called The Fact of a Body. It's by Alexandria Mazano-Lesnovich. It's published by Macmillan. 
it's a non-fiction and it's the gripping true story of a young law student, an unspeakable crime and a past that refuses to stay buried. Before Alexandria Mazana Lesnovich begins a summer job at a law firm in Louisiana working on the retrial defense of a death row convicted murderer and a child molester, Ricky Langley, she thinks her position is clear. The child of two lawyers, she is staunchly anti-death penalty. But the moment Ricky's face flashes on the screen as she reviews old tapes, the moment she hears him speak of his crimes, she is overcome with the feeling of wanting him to die. Shocked by her reaction, she digs deeper and deeper into the case, realizing that despite their vastly different circumstances, something in his story is unsettingly, uncannily familiar. Crime, even the darkest and most unspeakable acts, can happen to any one of us. And as Alexandria pours over the facts of the murder, she finds herself thrust into the complicated narrative of Ricky's childhood. And by examining minute details of Ricky's case, she is forced to face her own story, to unearth long-buried family secrets, to reckon with how her own past colours her view of his crime, of Ricky Langley, child murderer's crime. This is a true crime uh, non-fiction. It's as enthralling as in Cold Blood and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and the broadcast phenomenon such as Making a Murderer and Serial. The fact of a body is a groundbreaking, heart-stopping investigation into how the law is personal, composed of individual stories, and proof that arriving at the truth is more complicated and powerful than we could ever imagine. The author is Alexandria Mazano Lesvinich. You're looking at law, you're looking at child abuse, you're looking at a personal memoir. The fact of a body is harrowing reading, but at the same time it is a very, very important document of a legal mind approaching serial a murderer and her own instances of abuse at the, at the hands of a member of her own family. And one more book to look at. This is called The Last Son's Secrets. It's by Rafael, Rafael Nadal Ferraras. He is Spaniard, Liz, from Catalan, from uh, Catalan author. The book itself enjoyed a lot of success when it was published in Catalan in 2015. It's been translated into English. The story is set in the Puglia region of Italy, where in the small town of Bellorotondo, the names of 21 members of the Palmisano family are engraved on a memorial to the First World War. Vito Oronzo, the last Palmisano, son or man to die in the war leaves behind a pregnant wife, Donata. When the child, a boy, whom she names Vitantonio, is born, Donata is so afraid that her son will succumb to the curse of the Palmisanos that she takes desperate measures to secure his safety. And those measures become the last son's secret. The book follows his the son's life in the interwar years in Italy with beautiful descriptions of life in the Italian countryside, harvesting olives, picking cherries, planting flowers, 
and also how he spends his time during the Second World War. It is a beautifully written story about two families and the secrets that they hold in order to guarantee the survival of the last son in the family. So that is The Last Son Secret by Rafael Nadal Ferraris, published by Doubleday. It's also available in the shops. Just to quickly recap, we looked at How to Stop Time by Matt Haig, Safe by Ryan Gattis, the new book from Ruth Ware, which is called The Lying Game, Saints for All Occasions by Courtney Sullivan, Facts of a Body by Alexandria Mazano Lesnevich, and The Last Son Secret by Rafael Nadel Ferraras. We're out of time. Until next week, Shana Tova to everybody, and also Shabbos and keep reading.